The New Testament reading today is from Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning as we begin this new Advent series looking specifically at the ministry of, of John the Baptist as he prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. Before we, we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord together in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that it declares. The, the, the merciful message that it proclaims. And I pray, Lord, that through these words, you would form us, that you would prepare us, to push us, to reflect, to appreciate more deeply upon the coming of your Son, Christ Jesus. His first coming those many years ago, and also his second coming, that we still, with joy and hope, look forward to. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Like I said, for, for Advent this year, we're, we're looking at the ministry of, of John the Baptist and the way that he's presented in each of the four Gospels. And, and specifically, we're looking for how he prepares the way of the Lord. And in any, many ways, right, this is the purpose of, of Advent, to praise and to ponder the mystery of, of Christ Jesus, as, as we prepare the way of the Lord in our own hearts. Through Advent, we reflect deeply upon Christ's first Advent. That's, that's what that means, his, his coming, his first coming. And again, we, we also, in, in joyful expectation, we ponder his second coming that is to come. And today, we're beginning this series by looking at the Gospel of Mark and its presentation of John the Baptist. And in particular, today I want us to look at three aspects of John's ministry that, that Mark is showing us. We see wilderness, we see weirdness, and we see waywardness. So let's look at each of those in turn. First is wilderness, right? And, and John is preaching. In the wilderness. In the wilderness, this is important. The wilderness is a place of deep theological and symbolic significance for the people of God. And I should note, too, that when we speak of wilderness here, we're, we're not speaking of a forest wilderness, but we're, we're speaking of a stark, dusty place with much, much more dirt and rocks than water. So, yes, the desert is a difficult place, but in the biblical imagination, the wilderness is a very rich place. 
Commentator R.T. France, he, he makes a number of observations about the role of the wilderness in this particular passage. He tells us that it's only in the first chapter of Mark that we encounter the setting of the wilderness. It's here in the wilderness where John teaches and baptizes, and shortly after this passage, we'll see that it's where Satan tempts Jesus. But after this first chapter, we, we don't encounter the wilderness again in Mark. As France explains, the rest of Mark's story will be set in the context of normal life, with Jesus surrounded by ordinary people. Here in the prologue, however, Jesus' public activity has not yet begun, and the wilderness represents a separation from ordinary life. The wilderness here is a break. It's a separation from ordinary life. It's a step back from our routine. It's a place away from distractions. And for these reasons, the wilderness is often a place we are afraid to go. I remember when I was in college, I actually heard this statement. Someone told me this. This is the quote. The reason I'm going into this really tough graduate program is so I won't have time to think. And even at the time, I really appreciated that stark honesty. And, and, and here is what the person meant. It's really, really hard to be alone with your thoughts. And actually, it's much, much easier to be so, so busy that you don't even have to in the first place. And this is not new. The 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, he, he put it like this. The sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. In a similar way, the philosopher R.J. Snell, he points out that so much of modern life takes the form of being told to walk one mile, and then another mile, and then another mile, and so on, and so on, and so on. We're not told where it is that we're going, we're just told to walk. And, and we see everybody else walking, so we decide, well, yeah, let's, let's keep walking, too. And it doesn't necessarily cross our mind where it is that we're actually walking. We're just told to walk. Take, for instance, the, uh, this reflection. And this is, um, these are the words of a, of a finance worker who was interviewed by the BBC. He says this. I understand that relative to the whole country, I'm, I'm obviously part of the upper crust in terms of income, and, and I appreciate that I'm very privileged. But at the same time, I can't ever imagine not wanting to make more than I'm getting. When I hang out with people I went to high school with who, who generally work in jobs that pay less than mine, I definitely feel better about my salary. But then as soon as I'm back to work or, or hanging, back with, hanging out with people at work, that changes. So what does this man want? Well, he wants to make more money. How much more money? Well, he wants to make more money than whoever he happens to be with at the time. But what's the point of all this? He'll keep working and working and working. He'll keep seeking to make more and more and more. He'll never feel like it's enough. And then one day, he will die. To borrow an example I've heard before, if I asked you to meet for, for coffee next week, then you'd probably ask, well, well, why? Did, did something happen? Is, is something wrong? Do you just want to catch up? And those would all be really good questions. But here's the irony. The bigger question of why am I doing what I'm doing 
as in every single thing that I'm doing? We don't ask that question. We don't ask, why am I working and seeking romance and marrying and studying and saving and parenting and all the while entertaining myself in a million different ways? We don't ask, what's the point of any of this? Why am I actually doing all this stuff? Yes, we'd all ask the point about getting coffee, but we often ignore the point of life. And this is why we need the wilderness. The wilderness is a place away from ordinary life to reflect upon the why of ordinary life. Can we, for instance, enter into Pascal's wilderness? Can we learn to sit and reflect quietly in our own room? And this means without noise, without phones, without podcasts, without some news article, without a, uh, a to-do list, without sort of mentally composing your next email in your mind. This is important. And I invite you to take time to enter the wilderness, time away from ordinary life this Advent. And friends, the more reluctant you are to do this, the more important it is for you to do just this. Think about John. The walk into the wilderness prepared the people to receive the hard but hopeful message of John. And in the same way, let us walk into the wilderness as we prepare the way for the Lord to truly receive with joy, with reflection, with admiration, with joy, the celebration of the birth of Christ. Ordinary life is a good thing, a very, very good thing. But we have to know the why behind every good, ordinary thing that we do. And so this Advent, I invite you to ask yourself these kinds of questions. Questions in a break from, from your busy routine. Questions that only the space of the wilderness can really help you reflect rightly upon. Questions like this. Why is it that I'm working? What am I working for? How much money is enough? What am I ultimately expecting from my work? And is this something that actually only God can provide? Ask yourself this. In this present age of loneliness, am I firmly rooted in community? What are some regular habits of mine that actually make me lonelier, that reinforce this loneliness? How is it that I could more fully welcome others in my life? Ask yourself this. Am I sort of content to only live on the perimeters of this church community? Ask yourself, what are my greatest fears? Ask yourself, where is most of my money going and why? Ask yourself, where is most of my time going and why? Ask yourself why I haven't made time for this or that thing that God has called me to do. Ask yourself, what makes you angry? What makes you lose your temper? Ask yourself, if you're a parent, who? Who do I want my children to become? What do they need to know? What do they need to be able to do in order to become that kind of person? Ask yourself, am I training my family to love God above all else? Or does our life revolve around some other thing that pulls them and pulls all of us away from God in the church? Ask yourself this. Do I know God more fully this year than I did last year? Ask yourself, 
Do you yearn and desire for the glory of the Lord? Ask yourself, how can I grow in this desire for God? But there's more. R.T. France also notes that the wilderness is an important place in the memory of God's people. France calls the wilderness a place of hope, a place of new beginnings. And, and so it makes sense, right, that we find the wilderness at the beginning of Mark's gospel. The wilderness is a place. The wilderness is a place in the biblical memory, in the biblical imagination. It's the place where God met with and cared for his people after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. However, and this is important, the wilderness is not a place where we can survive on our own. In fact, in the wilderness, the people of God had to wholly entrust the care of their lives to God for their food, for their water, for their shelter, for all kinds of health issues. The wilderness was a place where the works and the ways of God were on full display because here they saw firsthand that every aspect of their life depended on the care of the Lord. And along the way, if you remember, the, the Israelites, they didn't want to be in the wilderness. But this is where God led them. And this is where God kept them. The people often voiced to Moses their, their hope, their, their, their desire to return from Egypt. But the Lord, knew, the Lord knew that for a large chunk of time, this is where they needed to be in order to learn to love him, in order to learn to know him. And this reminds us that the wilderness is also a place that we are often forced to go by circumstances we likely would not have chosen. Pains and trials often lead us into the wilderness because these struggles, in these struggles, we have to throw ourselves wholly upon the mercy and the provision of the Lord. We know this, right? When the hard situations of life come, when we receive a difficult health diagnosis, when we experience relational breakdown, when those who we love die, when we get devastating financial information, when the trials of life catch us off guard, we feel as if we're separated from the ordinary life of the city. We feel separated from that life that we were certain we were living only yesterday. Everything seems different. All the people around you are going on with life as usual, and in that moment, you don't understand how it is that you can go back to that life. And I'm sure everyone has experienced something like this in their life. It's a very strange feeling. Your world in that moment feels like it's falling apart, and somehow everybody else is doing all of those regular things, the ordinary life of the city. They're taking out the trash, they're dropping their kids off at school, they're making dinner, they're buying clothes, they're laughing with friends, and you feel separated. You feel separated from all of that. And yet, and yet, in that separation, that separation you feel from ordinary life, the ordinary life of the city, there is a special clarity that comes with that. The harsh realities of life in a fallen world have a unique power to free us from distraction and delusion. Only by the provision of God could the Israelites have survived in the wilderness. But here's the more important truth. Only by the provision of God could the Israelites have survived anywhere. It's just that the wilderness removed any delusions that they were not already and always dependent upon their God. 
The same is true for us. When we throw ourselves upon God in prayer, in desperation, in lament because of some trial that we experience, it's not that our dependence on God has changed. No, it's just that the veil has been removed. It's that the illusion has been dispelled. We always and only live by the gifts of God, by God's manna. But in the wilderness, we see that more clearly than ever before. It was always the Lord who sustained every atom of your body and so sustained your health. But in a crisis of health, we see that truth more clearly. It was always the Lord who graciously gifted you like manna, every relationship, every resource, every opportunity, every good thing that you have ever received. This was always so, but now you see it. In ordinary life, we can miss this. In ordinary life, we can forget God's miraculous provision of the mundane. But in the wilderness, we see that every ordinary thing is a supernatural gift. In the wilderness, we see that every breath, every gracious word, every penny, every instant of meaningful work, every new day is always and only a gift from God. The walk into the wilderness, free from the distractions and the delusions of the city, prepared the people to hear the voice of John. And so, too, must we enter into the wilderness, either by choice or by the circumstances of life, to best hear the good news that John proclaims. Only then can we know that we need it, and only then do we realize it as a good and gracious provision from our God. And this brings us to our second point, weirdness. If we must go to the wilderness to best hear what John is telling us, then John must be telling us something that we will not find in the frenzied routine of the city. John must be telling us something that's weird. And there's no way around it that John is weird, right? Mark tells us. He's a strange figure. Mark says John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. His outfit here is a reference, it's, it's an allusion back to, to the prophet Elijah who, who wore a similar outfit. And we also see that John has a very strange diet of eating locusts and honey. And at first we might balk at this, but think about it, right? If, if John wasn't weird or strange and unusual, no one is going to go out to see him. Only if John is offering something that he, no one's going to find anywhere else, only then are people going to make the hard and difficult trek into the wilderness to actually see him. As Jesus says to a crowd in Matthew 11, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Only to see and to hear a prophet, the greatest prophet, only then would someone be proclaiming a message that we're not finding elsewhere. And and only if that's the case are people going to make this trip to actually see John. Otherwise, they're going to stay home, right? It's not an easy trip out to the wilderness. And this is an important message for the church. We, like John, must be strange, unusual. We, like John, must be weird. 
So often we think evangelism is about trying to look as much like the culture as we can. But this is a dangerous impulse. The, the, the writer Ben Sixsmith, who is not a Christian, he warns Christians about this very thing in an article that he has written for The Spectator. He says that so often what, what, what churches offer is sort of the general cultural consensus, but with a twist of Christianity. And as a person who's not a Christian, he's actually confused by this. And specifically, in the modern moment, he identifies how this approach tends to get lumped into political movements on both the right and the left. He says that on the right, we often find Christians who offer self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. On the other side of the spectrum, he explains, there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. And Sixsmith points out that both groups, they actually share a core assumption despite how different they might seem. Sixsmith, Sixsmith explains, while different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. The former believes secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So, if Christianity is an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? This is an important question. What Six Smith is asking is this. What is actually different or special about Christianity? Yes, please hear me. It's important for all of us to faithfully fulfill our civic and political duties with a rightly ordered love for our city and our country. But if all we have is politics with a twist of Christianity, then what's the point? Is there something unique about the church that simply will not fit into the pre-made categories of our culture? Is there something different, something wholly unique, something truly weird that the church can offer? And if not, why not just sleep in on Monday mornings, enjoy, or Sunday mornings, Sunday, <laughs> right? Um, wait, yes, Sunday. Um, enjoy a cup of coffee and watch some cable news network. Why not spend your Sunday mornings like that? Sixsmith puts this in terms Christians should think deeply about. He writes this. This is, this is very important. I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for, doing, for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. We're naive if we don't think we risk falling into these categories. And this is nothing new. Look at what Mark tells us about John. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And it's important because, as one commentator notes, Mark is actually making a very subversive point here. Think about it. To see God in salvation, people are expected to go to Jerusalem. But, he, but, 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 but the people here, they're seeking God by going away 
from Jerusalem. They are leaving Jerusalem to seek salvation, and this turns everything on its head. And so we have to ask, why is this the case? Why would John be here in the wilderness and not in Jerusalem where you would expect the prophet to be? Well, it's because the wilderness is a perfect place for John's weirdness. It's a place to escape the cultural molds that Sixsmith here warns us about. Because here's the thing, in Jerusalem, people were also tempted by the cultural movements, by cultural movements with a twist of God. In Jerusalem, we see this in the life of Jesus, there were two main streams of religious life, that of the Pharisees and that of the Sadducees. Who were the Pharisees? They were those on the right of the religious establishment. They'd made service to God ultimately a matter of working hard, of separating themselves from anyone who disagreed with them, of collecting money, even at the sake of caring for one's parents, of laying a crushing load of burdens upon people in the form of rules, of thinking that sin is something that we can handle just fine on our own, on our own, and, and, and sizing others up, right, with the very harshest of judgments. And who are the Sadducees? Well, they were those on the left of the religious establishment. They had tied themselves to the status quo of the contemporary world, not seeking to ruffle the feathers of the pagan Romans and their Greco-Roman sophistication. They were the cultural gatekeepers. They possessed control of the official priesthood and the official training institutions. They held to a non-miraculous kind of Christianity that denied life after death and even the resurrection itself. Again, we are naive if we don't think we risk falling into these categories and losing what is unique what is weird about Christianity, like the Pharisees, like those on the right of the religious establishments. We have certain opinions of who should be and should not be in the church. We scrutinize each other, and especially those outside of the church with the harshest of judgments. And we're so worried about the surrounding culture and separating ourselves from it that we are more committed to reacting against the culture than following the guidance of Scripture. And that, too, is just another way of putting culture in the driver's seat. That itself is giving culture the first move. We don't take seriously the way God wants us to use our money and our resources in caring for others. Again, the Pharisees had even implemented a tradition of collecting money that allowed adult children to forgo the care of their very parents. And if this was the case, we can only imagine what other social and societal obligations they dismissed. Like the Sadducees, like those on the left of the religious establishment. We might identify ourselves as, as Christians, but rather than telling people what it is that we stand for, we want to make sure that people know that we're not that kind of Christian. Unlike the Pharisees, we, we, we don't get too carried away with it. We, we, we don't want our beliefs to interfere with our position or notoriety. If it's not in our best personal or professional interest, well, we're happy to reject or at least to remain silent on this or that particular area of, of doctrine. That could be the resurrection, that could be sexuality, that could be anything. We crave the respect and the acceptance of this cultural status quo, just like the Pharisees crave that of the Greco-Roman intelligentsia. We don't take seriously the way that God calls us to use the good gifts of our bodies because... Well, the resurrection and, and God's intended perfection for the human body and the human soul, these aren't really functional realities in the human life. And so each of us needs to ask, are you weird? 
Do people notice something different about you? Do you not quite fit in to their categories? Are people ever surprised that you hold positions that, that, that seem to transcend the cultural or political paradigms that society, society wants to force people into? We all need to leave Jerusalem and its cultural categories, and we all need to go into the wilderness. Don't seek some cultural position with a twist of Christianity. No, seek Christianity. Seek the God that John the Baptist proclaimed in rejecting both the ways of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as for the church itself, the hope is this. That those who are not Christians, as they experience the liturgy and the word and the worship and the warm welcome and hospitality of this congregation, the hope is that they would find themselves thinking, that was weird, that was unusual, that was a little strange, but actually finding it compelling, finding it attractive. And if that's you this morning, my, my hope is that that is your experience here. And as for Advent, we all need to ask ourselves, are you preparing for Christmas in a weird way? Are you preparing for Christmas in exactly the same way that everyone else is? Or is there something distinctive about the way that you are preparing your home and your heart for the celebration of Jesus Christ, his first coming to us on Christmas? And in reflecting on these questions, we come to our third and final point, waywardness. Look at how Mark begins this passage and begins his entire gospel account. He writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the royal announcement of what Christ has done. And in John, we find the ministry of the one who prepares the way for this good news. Again, the wilderness is a place of beginnings. Mark tells us that John is the very messenger, is the very prophet spoken about by the earlier prophet Isaiah, the one who will prepare the way of the Lord, of the Lord. And if you think about it, that's not what we would expect. Rather, we would expect to hear, I think, something like this, that John came to prepare the way to the Lord, not the way of the Lord. We expect that because of the ministry of John, now we know the path that we must travel to God. John has pointed us in the right direction. John is just one more teacher telling us how we can walk the path to God. He prepared the path, he pointed us to it, and now we just have to follow it until we come to God. But let me ask you, is that a message that you need to go into the wilderness to hear? Is that a message that's weird? Is that a message that's actually unique in any way? Isn't that what we already expect? from religions? When we say something like all religions lead to God, we assume that, 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 that any good religious teaching will basically give you some commands and some advice that you need to follow in the way that you should live, and that will take you to God. 
Religious teachers come and they tell us how we are to behave ourselves so that we, we can make that journey to God. And John is just one more teacher like this, and, and maybe he's the best one. Maybe he can even point us to the best in the quickest way to the path to God. But even still, it is we who are doing the traveling. We are going to God. However, this is not the weird and strange and unexpected message that John brings. John doesn't prepare our path. He doesn't prepare our way. He prepares the path. He prepares the way of the Lord. It is not us who will be doing the traveling. It is God. It is not us going to God, but God coming to us. And so how is it that this path is prepared? Mark tells us. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what it means to truly come to the wilderness, to seek repentance and to long for forgiveness. It is to be humbled. It's to realize that if all I have are commands and good advice, then I will never, ever, ever get to God. The wilderness is a place where we can deeply reflect on all of those questions that we mentioned earlier and where we can seek to identify the selfish or prideful or the spiteful why behind our sins. It's a place where we realize that our only proper response to God is to repent and to seek forgiveness. And this is weird, right? Because think about it. What John is telling us is that the way to come to God is by admitting that you cannot come to God. John is telling us that the first step on this journey is admitting that this is a journey that you cannot take. But again, it is not your path to God that John prepares, but God's path to you. Advent means coming. It means God came to us, not that we came to God. And this is not what we would expect. And maybe when we hear the word repent, maybe we've been desensitized to it. Maybe what we think about is, is some angry, furious person on a street corner yelling in self-righteous condemnation about repenting. But please see that repentance is a wonderful privilege. Repentance means that there is such a thing as forgiveness. Repentance means that we can graciously receive from God good gifts that we don't deserve. Repentance means that God does not divide the world into the good and the bad. He does not divide the world into those who can come to him and those who cannot. If that were the case, all of us would be lost. No, God divides the world, as is often said, into the proud and into the humble. He divides the world into those who wrongly think that they can make the trip to God and those who humbly know that without God's mercy they are sunk because they can't make the trip and God must come to them. This is repentance. God, I cannot do it. God, I've made a mess of things, a bigger mess than even I know. I've not loved you or my neighbor as I should. God, if my life is up to me, then everything is ruined. God, I cannot come to you. Please, Lord, do what I cannot. This 
And this alone is how we prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts. This is the wilderness that we must come to. Again, Mark tells us that this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is not advice or commands. If that were the case, there would be nothing special here, nothing weird, strange, or unusual here. It would just be business and religion as usual. But no, this is news. It's about something that has already happened. It's the news of what Christ has already done for us on our behalf. And as the rest of Mark will tell us, this is the good news of the Son becoming human to come to us in his first advent. On our behalf. He lived the perfect life of love before God and neighbor, the life that we were commanded to live, but have not. And he suffered the punishment on the cross that we, not he, deserved for our each and our every sin. And when we repent, what we do is we turn away from ourselves and our own deeds, and we turn unto Christ and what he has already graciously, mercifully lovingly done for us. When we do this, we receive the forgiveness of sins because Christ has given us his own righteousness and he has taken our guilt and our shame. This is the good news that John prepares us to hear and we best hear this news in the wilderness where we realize that everything, even our own salvation, is a gift from God that comes down to us that comes to us like manna. Christ, Christ just is that true manna. He is the very bread of life in the wilderness of a fallen world. And yes, 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 this message is weird. It is the humble and supremely joyful news that we have been reconciled to our great God, not because we have come to him, but because he has come to us. Not because of what we have done or will do, but because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. If John only comes to point the way to God, then any good religious teaching that directs us to good conduct and behavior, that'll do. That'll be fine. But if John points us He points us to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has accomplished our salvation for us. Then we have to look to Christ alone. If John points us to the way traveled by the Lord, and not the way traveled by us, then faith in Christ is our only proper response. And yes, this is a message of enduring hope as well as we continue to prepare our hearts for that time that Christ will come to us once again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that John prepared your way. Your way, not of us coming to you, but of your coming to us in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that in this Advent season, we would wrestle in the wilderness that we would seek repentance and long for forgiveness so that we might fully, more fully receive Christ Jesus, who you have sent to us. It's in his name that we pray and the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Amen.